0: On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform and economics. I'm very excited to talk to today's guest, Dr. Elizabeth Linos, who's an assistant professor of public policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks for making time for us today, and welcome to JPM's Closer Look podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Seth. I'm happy to be here.
0: Great. Yeah, I'm excited you're here, too, because we're going to be talking about a really interesting paper. The paper is called Nudging Early Reduces Administrative Burden, Three Field Experiments to Improve Code Enforcement. This article was published in the winter 2020 issue of JPAM. And the title is quite descriptive. You and your colleagues, Lisa Kwan and Elspeth Kirkman conducted a series of field experiments that assess how nudging and behavioral science more generally can reduce administrative burden, reduce costs and increase compliance and housing quality. And we'll talk about what all those words mean and, and what your study actually did in a second. But before we dig into the actual research, let me just congratulate you and your co-authors again, because this paper was the recipient of the 2020 Vernon Prize. Now, regular listeners might remember that we talked to Professor Tom D. of Stanford University a few episodes ago about his Vernon Prize-winning article on accountability in the early childhood education space. And, And if you missed it, you should check it out. It's a very interesting discussion that we had about the study. But we are happy to today continue the tradition of hosting the Vernon Prize winner uh, on the Closer Look podcast to talk about their paper. So the Raymond Vernon Memorial Prize was established in 1985. Raymond Vernon has a number of of lifetime accomplishments, including working on the Marshall Plan uh, after World War II. And he was a pioneer of using quantitative analyses of the stock market, a pioneer of using computers to do those analyses. And he was on the faculty of Harvard University's Business School and Kennedy School of Government for quite some time. And most importantly for us, he was also the founding editor of JPAM, of the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. So this award is to identify and promote uh, policy-relevant research, and this research certainly is policy-relevant. And so let's, let's dig into the study. You are using behavioral insights uh, or lessons from psychology to really try and improve policy and the administrative process. And one of the things I like about this paper is that it's really part of a bigger movement, designed to try to simplify administrative and bureaucratic processes in ways that increase efficiency, reduce costs, and ultimately improve users' experiences. And this movement includes researchers, policymakers, public employees. How did you get involved in this study?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, one thing to note is that there is so much interest right now in governments across the world to be using insights from behavioral science more broadly to be incorporating mm-hmm. a strong evidence base uh, in their policy making. So there's a lot of demand for this kind of work. For me, you know, my, my first exposure to doing these kind of field projects started when I was working in development. But um, more recently, I was the head of research and evaluation for the behavioral insights team in North America. And these projects were part of a larger initiative that BIT did with with cities across the U.S. called the What Works Cities Initiative. This is a Bloomberg Philanthropies initiative to help cities with technical assistance for these kinds of projects. Oh, cool. And so, you know, one of the benefits of, of this type of engagement is that it links up cities who are excited to innovate using evidence and using data with uh, rigorous researchers who are also interested in using data and evidence for for better policymaking.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it seems like this paper clearly was a mutually beneficial exchange then. I think the cities learned a lot and the researchers got to work in the field with some high quality data on some important problems. Uh, so that's great. And, and we'll, we'll talk more at the end, I think, about these researcher practitioner partnerships that are so important. But in your study, the title refers to administrative burden. Now, we've talked about this; these behavioral insights are being applied to make things run smoother, make things run easier, improve client outcomes. What is administrative burden and why is it harmful?
1: That's a great question. So administrative burden has been studied for, for a while now under different names. So some people might call it just red tape or hurdles or ordeals. In more recent public management research, administrative burden really refers to three types of costs that residents might face when they try to interact with their government. And this has been popularized recently in a book by Pam Hurd and Don Moynihan called Administrative Burdens. But the, the gist of the argument is there are three types of costs that we might want to worry about. The first is a learning cost. So do people know That programs exist that they can benefit from? Is it easy for them to find out if they're eligible for those programs? Any sort of hurdle that is in the way of you figuring out what the rules are or what um, the eligibility criteria are, or even that the program exists, ends up being part of the administrative burden that keeps people away from programs that they are eligible for. The second type of cost is about compliance. So even if you know that a program exists, or even if you know the rules that you're supposed to be following, complying with those rules can include a bunch of different types of costs. Those could be monetary costs, like having to pay fines or fill out forms that are costly. It could be your time. It could be uh, all sorts of different types of uh, compliance hurdles that make it difficult for people to have a positive and seamless interaction with, with government. And then there's this Whole third category, which the literature calls psychological costs. And that could cover anything from stigma to feeling like you don't really trust the government to feeling like you're not exactly sure what you're supposed to do in this situation. There are many types of psychological barriers that we might face when we're trying to interact with government. So, the kind of crux of uh, the research or the crux of the evidence that we're trying to build in this paper and in others is how can we reduce those types of costs? So that the administrative burden goes down and residents have a more seamless and more positive interaction with their governments.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the tool that you're going to use for reducing those costs is nudging. Nudges are are one of the more well-known behaviorally informed interventions. I learned about it from the book Nudge by Thaler and Sunstein. Where did the idea of nudging come from? And how did it get on your radar as a tool to use in the case of housing codes?
1: Yeah, like, like a lot of us, you know, the idea that we could use evidence from psychology to improve how we do economics or how we do policymaking really became clear um, through the book Nudge and through other kind of research that was done at that point. So about 10 years ago, when the first book was published, there was this huge explosion of research using nudges to improve policymaking. However, what's I think more interesting is that there was also an explosion of policymakers using nudges in government. And so, in 2010, the Behavioral Insights Team was founded in in the UK. Now there are over 200 nudge units across the world who are using nudges and behavioral science to improve government. So, I really entered this space because I I love evidence-based policymaking and randomized control trials. But then after I worked at BIT, it became clear to me that this is a tool that has so many different ways of of supporting the work of policymakers across the world.
0: Right. And so what is a nudge?
1: So there's a lot of debate about what counts as a nudge, but essentially a nudge is a simple tweak or uh, adjustment to the choice architecture. So the environment in which people make choices that doesn't change financial incentives or doesn't really change your options, but really just nudges you, as the word suggests, in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And the important characteristics here are that you're changing the choice architecture or the environment in which people are making choices. You're not taking away options, so you're not mandating something or forbidding something. And you're not significantly changing the financial component. So it's not like you're incentivizing people with a lot of money to take on one option uh, over another. So a typical nudge might be tweaking um, the order in which you see something or where, you know, where we place the healthy or unhealthy foods in a cafeteria or the language that we use in a letter or, you know, a postcard that we send. Really kind of low cost changes to how we communicate with people and how we shape choices.
0: Right. And for those reasons, nudges are, are known as a light touch intervention because, like you said, they're not, they're not imposing big costs. They're also relatively agreeable. They're not, they're not overly challenging to implement from a political sense. Is that that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. There's been some research on this, and it seems like usually people are comfortable with nudges if they are comfortable with the policy outcome that uh, you're nudging towards. So usually the, the question is, do we want people to be nudged, you know, to eat more healthy food or to exercise more? or to recycle more, or to donate their organs, depending on where you are on the political spectrum, uh, on any of those outcomes, that's going to determine whether or not you think a nudge is is kind of an easy and uh, positive solution.
0: Right. But the low cost is a, is a benefit.
1: Absolutely. There's it's no question that yeah. the reason nudges became so popular in government is related to the fact that we were coming out of a financial crisis. And this was an approach that promised to be low cost, but to provide disproportionately large impact, uh, given the low cost.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so some of the examples you just gave of, of nudges uh, have to do with the take up of programs. And when I think of nudges, I tend to think of the take up of programs. But here you're using nudges to reduce administrative burden. Can you walk us through the chain reaction that the nudge might cause that would, that would reduce administrative burden?
1: Yeah, so part of the reason that we found this project interesting is because it's kind of turning some intuition on its head. So usually when we talk about administrative burdens, we think of just the number of steps or the number of processes you have to go through to interact with government. And so often when we think about reducing administrative burdens, we think about taking away those steps. What we do in this series of studies is we say, actually, sometimes the best way to simplify a process is to provide information simply and early on. And so what we do is we nudge people to take action earlier on in this kind of long and arduous process called code enforcement.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, by doing so, even though we're adding steps in some cases, we're actually simplifying the overall process and reducing burden overall. That ends up reducing kind of the length of the process and the and the more costly arduous steps later on. But it isn't as simple as, as just taking away steps in a process to simplify them.
0: Right. And so let's talk a little bit about that process. Your context here is housing code enforcement and specifically uh, property owners complying with regulations and, and codes for that property. What are some typical housing codes and, and some common violations? And, and why do we have these codes in the first place?
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really good question, Seth. And, you know, code enforcement can span a whole bunch of different types of code violations. But if you think about everything from kind of public health risks, when we ask landlords to make sure that they're, you know, they're taking out rental properties, we want to make sure they're up to code. What that means is, you know, there's no uh, hygiene risk, there's no rats, there's no safety risks, there are kind of serious violations that could cause harm and, and public health risks. There's also a huge challenge with abandoned homes and what that might mean, both in terms of public health risks, but also in terms of Property uh, prices in the community and other potential downsides to having challenges with blight uh, in a neighborhood, and so housing policy uh, around code enforcement tries to tackle a lot of those types of code violations. Other code violations are simpler, things like you know making sure that you're mowing your lawn to a specific height. But really, the the reason we try to tackle this is because so much money is spent by city governments on code enforcement, and so if we can simplify that process both for government but also for the residents, then then maybe it's a win-win for both sides.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think again, that's I think that's part of why nudges and and behaviorally informed policies are so appealing is that often that they often are a win-win. Client and citizen outcomes are improved and the government saves money. So and in this case of, of the housing code, your hypothesis is that a lot of people want to comply with the housing codes, with these laws, but for a variety of, of what we might think of as relatively small reasons, they can't. Or maybe they forget, maybe they get distracted. And that's exactly the type of problem that a nudge can help fix. Is that right?
1: That's right. If we think about people's motivations on some sort of distribution, like some, some people are not fixing up their homes because they can't, uh, because they don't have the resources to, or because they don't have the capacity to, to, for other reasons, then there are people who aren't fixing up their homes because they forgot, or they didn't even know that this was a code violation. And so, you know, one logic is if we use nudges and these light touch tools to encourage homeowners that can fix up their properties to do so quickly, then we can use the saved resources to actually support people who need the support. And so really a nudge is not gonna be appropriate for everyone. But our findings in these studies show that there's at least some sort of marginal homeowner who can be nudged uh, to improve their property faster with a low-cost tool.
0: Right. I think that's another important insight of your paper that we don't always think about. You know, when, when people don't do something, they're doing it for different reasons. And, and maybe, you know, helping the, the way that we're going to help people is going to be different for different people uh, depending on their problem. And so you analyze three different nudges in three different cities, but it's not just different cities. It's also different contexts in the sense that you're looking at different points in the compliance process. And and we'll talk about these three different experiments in a second, but they are experiments and specifically they are field experiments in which you collaborate with local governments, like you mentioned in the intro. What is a field experiment? for those listeners who are, who are not familiar uh, with field experiments, and why is this a useful tool for analyzing the impact of these nudge policies?
1: Yeah, field experiments are, by some accounts, the golden standard of evaluation. And the reason sometimes they're called the gold standard of evaluation is because they help us do something that seems quite simple in theory, but is really hard to do in practice. Anytime you launch a new program or you start a new initiative, if you want to know if it works, you have to compare it to what would have happened had you not had the program, if the program hadn't happened or the initiative hadn't happened. But because it's impossible to go back in time, right, and, you know, remeasure the, the outcomes without the program, what a field experiment does is says, okay, why don't we take a group of people or a group of households or a group of neighborhoods that do participate in the program and compare them to a group of households or neighborhoods or people that look identical in all ways, except that they didn't receive the program. Now, the experimental nature um, of this methodology means that rather than picking that comparison group uh, by hand, we pick it at random. So that statistically, if those groups are big enough, not only are you gonna have the same number of men and women or the same number of rich people and poor people or the same number of motivated people or not motivated people, but really anything that you can think of, even things that you can't see in the data, should look similar between those two groups. And so if after you run your program and you measure your impact, you see a difference in comparison to this other statistically identical group, then you can say with confidence that it was your program that caused this change as opposed to anything else that you know, might be happening in, in society or you know, in that month in that city.
0: So it's, it's going to identify the causal effect of this program
1: absolutely and that's a really important part of really being able to say with confidence that you know this program is worth the money we spent on it it's worth it for the outcomes we get to really be able to say you know what works we need to be able to know that the program caused any effects that we see
0: mhm and the fact that it's, we're calling it a field experiment just means that this experiment's being conducted in real life in the field
1: that's right so this approach isn't new we use it for any new medication, you know, the, anytime a new medication goes onto the market, it goes through uh, an experiment with exactly the same methodology that's done uh, through the FDA. Anytime we're in a, in a lab, we're using this kind of methodology. The field component is saying, let's take that approach and that level of rigor, but take it to real policy problems in real time. And so that's what these field experiments are.
0: Right. And the first field you study, the first place you go is New Orleans. What was the specific intervention that you studied in New Orleans, and what was the goal of this nudge?
1: Yeah, so um, in New Orleans, like in a lot of places, and certainly in all the places that we study, the code enforcement process has many steps. In the beginning, someone has to call. Usually they call 311 and they make a complaint, or they, they make a note that says someone has a violation. Then an inspector has to come out and check the property. They decide whether or not a violation exists, then they go back, write it up, send a letter. The homeowner then has to respond to that letter. An inspector comes out later um, to check whether the homeowner fixed the property. So there's this series of steps that happen in order to help the homeowner first know that they have a violation and then fix up their property. What we did in New Orleans is something really simple. Rather than waiting for an inspector to come out and check that there is indeed a violation, and then leave for a month and, and come back a month later to check whether it was fixed. As soon as that 311 call came in, we sent a courtesy letter to the homeowner that said, Hey, just so you know, someone has called and said that there's a violation on your property. Now, that's not a legally binding document. No one has checked yet whether um, there is a violation, but it's more like a, a, a polite heads up that an inspector is coming. And what we wanted to do is see if we could, just by giving people that information quickly, so to reduce those learning costs, we wanted to see if we could improve compliance by first inspection. And we did. So we ended up seeing a 15% increase in compliance by first inspection for those households that got this, this courtesy letter. And what that means in practice is that now the city doesn't have to invest in sending out an inspector a month later and the additional costs of that and the, the homeowner themselves can fix this up quickly without getting to the stage of, of uh, fines. So in, in some cases, it's a win-win just by adding what seems like an obvious piece of information, telling people early on in the process that, you know what, someone's mentioned that there's a violation and we're going to come check it out.
0: And the only cost is, is just the cost of mailing out the letters.
1: Yeah, basically. The cost is, is really limited because you're actually gaining a lot of money because you don't have to send out an inspector a second time.
0: Right. So the the trade-off is you're is you're replacing a the inspector presumably has a, a decent salary, spends a couple hours on the inspection, you're trading that off for a a letter in the mail. That's amazing, right? And I think that really highlights the power of nudges and the and the power of, of thinking through these these processes. So the next city you went to was Louisville, Kentucky, and here you're looking at a different point in the compliance timeline. Here, you're looking between initial and follow-up inspections. What happened there, and, and why are you looking at a different point in the process in Louisville?
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing to highlight, Seth, is that part of the approach that we're highlighting in this paper is that many administrative processes are a series of pain points and so nudges can be most effective if we're hitting different pain points. Each one of them is going to make some difference, a marginal difference, hopefully. But overall, if you're hitting each of the pain points with uh, more behaviorally informed tools, you can have a big impact overall. So in Louisville, we, we really focused on the letters themselves. themselves. So as I mentioned, when an inspector goes to a city and if there is a reason to send, uh, send in a letter, it's because there's a, a violation. So there's a citation and violation letter that that goes out. Oftentimes, and this won't surprise anyone, the letters are written in legalese. uh, So they'll say, you know, pursuant to code 34B, you know, blah, blah, blah. No one really understands what they say or what you have to do. Okay. So what we did is we tried to simplify the letter itself so that it could make sense to someone, not only in terms of what the violation was to reduce the learning costs, but also what people could do to fix the violation or what other kind of help exists. And that's really to to reduce the compliance costs. In that case, there were multiple inspections like in other cities. We didn't see a change by second inspection, but we did see an improvement in compliance by third inspection. And these are kind of happening sequentially over time. And so one additional thing we learned from that process is that maybe the rate or the frequency of those inspections uh, was so high that people didn't really have the time to fix up their property, even if they wanted to. So one you know, simple change, both to save money and time for the city, is to space out those inspections to give people time to really fix up the property. In some ways, we learned a similar lesson in Louisville that we had learned in New Orleans, which is that if you give people an early warning or if you give them enough time to fix up a property, they'll do so, or at least some people will do so at higher levels, but you do have to give them the time to make that change.
0: And given the time, you know, clearly, as you said, saves the city money. It also probably lowers the stress of the residents themselves of, of failing a, an inspection or having a one fewer inspection. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we've seen that nudges can work early on and in between inspections. And a big part of that is giving residents time to comply, because again, our hypothesis was that many people wanted to comply, but for, for whatever reason, couldn't comply or comply right away. And I, I think that the first two experiments, you know, bear that out. People do want to comply. And then experiment number three is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Here, you sent preemptive postcards to property owners who had had violations in the past. But if I understand right, they didn't necessarily have a current violation, is that right? And what was the motivation for this, this nudge?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, Seth. So, you know, oftentimes when we talk about code enforcement or housing policy more broadly, one question that inevitably comes up and rightly comes up is, look, you're pushing people to fix up their homes, but what if they don't know where to go to get help or they don't have the financial resources to make those adjustments, you know, at the time? And that's part of the reason that they have, A violation in the first place. That's a perfectly reasonable argument. And so to Chattanooga's credit, what Chattanooga wanted to do is say, how can we help people get services or access programs that we have to help them fix up their properties before it becomes a a violation? And so what we did in Chattanooga is we looked at people who had violations in the previous year and then before high season, so there are certain seasons where violations go up, before high season, we sent them essentially a preemptive postcard that said, hey, you had violations before, you had to pay a fine. This year, here are some resources that are that exist that you can access to make sure that your, your home is up to code. And so in some ways, this does two things. One, it helps people access services that already exist to help homeowners. But also, it reminds them of The likelihood that they will have uh, some sort of fine in the future if they don't keep their home up to code. And so if there are households out there that, you know, really do want to maintain their property, but just, you know, forget what the rules are or forget why there was a violation last year, they're getting that information early on, but they're also getting access to services, which I think is a really important part of, of that process. And we saw that Sending these kind of preemptive postcards did reduce re-offenses by about 9%. And so here it's a really clear case.
0: And re-offenses are fairly common in this setting.
1: Yes, re-offenses are relatively common. And and here's a a really important setting where the field experiment matters. Because we have this comparison group, right, that was randomly selected, we can see the level of re-offense one year later and compare it to the group that received the preemptive postcard and still get a good sense of what would have happened had these households not received the postcard. And so, you know, one way to think about this is how can we support people even before they get into this administrative hurdle or this administrative process of code enforcement by proactively supporting them before we get to that point?
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And I I think for different reasons, all three of these experiments are, are really fascinating, showing us both, you know, how people make decisions, but also how governments can Help people make better decisions and improve the quality of life for everybody. And so, having said that, these were three different cities, three different nudges, three different points of the process. But were there any common themes or lessons that you you take out of these three different experiments at some uh, broader level?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, one thing that I certainly learned during during these uh, studies is just how many cities are struggling with the same types of issues. So quote enforcement doesn't sound like the sexiest topic to be studying, but if you ask any local government leader, you know, what keeps them up at night? What part of the process do they hate? You know, what their blight strategy is? This comes up all the time. And so one thing that these cities had in common was a similar challenge that we tackled using different nudges, but are really trying to get at the same outcome. The second thing I think that is true in these projects, but more broadly in the work that both BIT does with cities uh, and I do in my own research, is really trying to focus on improving the resident-government interaction, whatever that means. In each case, these are cities that could have made this a very punitive process, but we're really trying hard to work with households and with residents to not get to that point, to not get to the point where you're going to court and you have huge fines and fees. And so you know, in a world where, where there's legitimate concern about whether or not you should even have code enforcement or whether or not you should even have fines, at least you see in these examples, cities that were trying to figure out ways to act early and proactively to make it a, a better experience for households.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, my next question was gonna be about a formal cost benefit test of these nudges, but before your answer just now made me think of something else, which is the cost benefit analysis is going to miss that improved citizen government relationship, which is an important thing. So I'll let you discuss the cost benefit test, which is, you know, shows that there is a big cost saving to cities. But but I think it's important to note that that really, that underestimates the benefits because it's ignoring this improved relationship.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point you bring up, Seth. So, just on the kind of administrative costs, we estimate that if a mid sized city's implemented all three of these types of interventions, so these are all very low cost nudges, they could reasonably expect cost savings of about either between $100,000 and $300,000 annually. And that's about 6 to 15% of the department's operating budget. So, it's a big chunk uh, of savings that comes with this process that really. <laughs> At really low cost, but also without being punitive, which I think is really important. But to your broader point, Seth, one of the approaches that we think about a lot when we do these types of projects is how can we make sure that we're building trust in government? And I don't need to tell you how difficult it is to, to not only build trust, but rebuild trust in government. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be especially true for communities that have been harmed by government policies in the past. And so one way to think about any type of improvement in resident government interaction is not only how can we save people time and money, which of course is incredibly important on both sides, but also how can we communicate proactively with residents in a way that is respectful and gives people the chance to do what they, what they think is right and what is appropriate for the city, rather than using more punitive measures that are often used to deal with things
0: like coding or, or code enforcement. Mm-hmm. So that trust point uh, is important. And I think now is a very important time to rebuild and, and build trust in our civic institutions and cities and, and government and so on. So we were talking about the nudges. We're, we're talking about nudges in the context of housing code compliance. Is there anything we can learn from, from your study or, or these types of nudges for other governmental problems or other policies?
1: I think so. So, you know, one of the benefits of working in this space is that you can actually use these tools across a host of different policy areas. If we're doing our work correctly and we're thinking about this correctly, we're really trying to uncover what motivates people to take action. And so, that, you know, the, the important part there of, you know, human motivation or how to get people to trust the messenger when there's, you know, instructions that they need to follow that can apply to any sort of different areas. So we've seen nudges being used in these areas. There are a lot of nudges that are used to increase take-up of social programs like SNAP or the EITC. But you can even think about improving resident-state interactions in environments that are more controversial. So thinking about how we can improve community police relations or how we can improve the interactions between parents and school districts. Uh, The approach is really about making sure that we are uh, clear and simple in in our language. We're making it easy for people to comply or to take action. And we're incorporating what we know from human psychology and human motivation into our design of programs and services, as opposed to thinking of it as an afterthought.
0: Yeah. So so again, I think that's an important point for our our listeners to to keep in mind, which is that this is not specific or unique to housing policy, these these basic ideas can and, and have been applied and will be applied to all sorts of different public policy problems and governance problems. And and speaking of that broad application, there's a lot to like about this paper, uh, and and not the least of which is that this is a really fantastic example of a research practitioner partnership that actually not only got some very clean, compelling results, but in an academic sense, but, but it also made people better off, uh, save government's money, improve citizens' lives. What advice do you have either for cities or researchers who are hoping to make these types of connections?
1: That's a, that's a big question. Let me start with researchers. So my advice for researchers is to really take the time to listen to what government agencies need and find ways to be useful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one thing that we often do incorrectly as academics when we interact with governments is we come in with a question and a hypothesis, and we're just looking for a place to test it, or we're just coming in to extract data. But really, if you build a relationship with government agencies, and you, you center the conversation around how to be useful to a problem that is important to the government partner, then you can really build long lasting and and really effective academic practitioner partnerships. On the other side, you know, one thing that was new for government partners, but is becoming all the more common is a comfort with academics coming in and analyzing data and being part of the design team. So the cities and the government agencies that are doing this really well, are really transparent about the types of challenges they're facing, and are transparent about sharing data, of course, with appropriate protections and data use agreements. But I think it's, it's really effective when a government leader says, look, I have this challenge. I have a day job. Can you help me figure out a solution? And in exchange, I'll share data with you. I'll give you the access that you need to be able to answer the question rigorously. And you can publish the results so that other cities and other academics can learn and what I've found is that more and more cities and government agencies are willing to create those
0: collaborations.
1: But, you know, it's still, it's still hard and it's still risky to open yourself up to an academic.
0: You have to build trust. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's on, it's on both sides of that equation to make that collaboration useful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I'll, I'll reiterate the point again, because I, I do know that a, a lot of researchers struggle m- making that. Uh, You know, that making that step of listening to what what the government agency or institution, what they're worried about over and above whatever, whatever your research agenda might be. And just like we talked about this, uh, these nudges are mutually beneficial for citizens in the city. These researcher practitioner partnerships can be very mutually beneficial. The researcher gets access to data and gets to publish those results. And that's beneficial for other cities, but it's it's beneficial for the city itself because they're getting some some more or less free consulting and data analysis and expertise from an engaged academic. So I know JPAM encourages this type of research, and um, this is a great example of of such a mutually beneficial collaboration. And so finally, then going back to housing compliance policy specifically. Or even maybe more broadly, um, using behavioral science, what should cities and local governments take away from your findings you know when when it comes to code enforcement regulation and uh, interacting with citizens?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of findings that I think are true, no matter what the city or what the government agency. The first is, I do encourage cities or policymakers to think about their enforcement processes as a series of steps and a series of pain points, and to really try to figure out the the specific moment that can be tweaked or adjusted with a nudge, as opposed to thinking about kind of broad reform or changing the whole system, which might take years, really trying to break down the process into individual steps and and figure out which steps can be improved can have these long-term or larger impacts that are surprisingly positive. So the first is to kind of do the exercise of breaking down the whole process into individual points. The second is to consider reaching out early and often to residents before getting into kind of the harder parts of the process of code enforcement, even if it's not legally binding, even if it doesn't come with an official citation form, telling people early on what code enforcement is or what housing violations are, and helping them gain access to services that can help them fix up their homes can have these long-term consequences um, that are positive for both sides involved. So I do encourage cities to think about reaching out proactively and reaching out early in the process to avoid a more lengthy process down the line.
0: Well said. I think both of those points are, are extremely important thinking about the the process itself and and specific points in the process where things get jammed up. And being proactive, I I think, are both very uh, important, as your research shows, very important ideas that are are broadly applicable. Is there anything we missed that you'd like to say, or or is there one important finding you want to end on?
1: I don't think so. I guess the broader important finding, I think, to think about is that although nudges can be really effective and are certainly cost effective, given how low cost they are, it is important to think about them as one tool in the toolbox. They're not supposed to be a substitute for broader reform, and they shouldn't um, stop us from thinking more broadly about how we fix housing challenges more broadly. A a nudge isn't going to fix, you know, the, the fundamentals or the systemic nature of the housing crisis in many cities in which we work. And so in some sense, it's really useful to use nudges as as part of the toolkit. But it is important to remember that even the, the most committed behavioral scientists or the most committed nudge users would never dream that this approach should be a substitute for broader thinking around housing.
0: Right. It's a powerful tool, but different problems might need different tools. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks. This has been a really uh, fascinating discussion today. Our guest today has been Dr. Elizabeth Linos, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Her paper on the use of nudges to reduce administrative burden is available in the Winter 2020 issue of JPAM and also on the podcast website. Thank you again for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the j podcast.